Hello, everybody. Um, glad to see you here. Uh, my name's Simon Knight, and I'm hosting the Scotland Salon this evening. Um, for those of you who are new to the Scotland Salon, uh, it's part of the Academy of Ideas Salon Network, which stretches around mainly Britain, but uh, other areas too. And um, the aim is really to try and create a, a friendly, convivial space uh, in which disagreement can occur um, without it becoming slanderous and, and too abrasive. Um, uh, we encourage robust disagreement if you disagree robustly, um, but we keep it civilized. Um, for those of you who have been here before, then you, you'll know the score. Um, and we've discussed various kind of issues um, in the past. Um, this is this is part of a, a, re, a revamped series of discussions that we're having. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, tonight solidarity with Ukraine, concepts of freedom, democracy and sovereignty. But we're looking at uh, trauma and democracy in the coming months. And that will lead up to a hopefully an in-person in face-to-face event in November um, in Glasgow that we're planning, um, which would be really, really great. I think Zoom has been wonderful in terms of uh, promoting participation at, at these kind of discussions, but face, meeting face-to-face -face is um, what I really, really want to kind of do because then we get to eyeball each other. Um, so, uh, Tonight, we have uh, a discussion on uh, Ukraine. Ukraine is in the news. Um, we're looking at kind of four concepts around that freedom, democracy, and sovereignty, which link and are very pertinent to discussions in Scotland around independence that we've uh, been raising for a number of years now. But also the, the notion of solidarity and what actually that might look like and what it can entail. Um, there's a lot of people expressing solidarity, but what that actually means in practical terms uh, in, in a sense, can pacify some of us. Um, I haven't got any javelin missiles to send. If I had, I would, um, but there are other forms of solidarity that can happen. Um, we have three speakers uh, th this evening, uh, James Hartfield, um, Eddie Barnes, and Jacob Reynolds. And they're gonna speak in that order for five to seven minutes. And these are short provocations. These are not all encompassing theories um, on, on what's occurring. They're, they're, their thoughts, their musings on what's, happening from their particular points of view. And they're really meant as provocations uh, to get you thinking and to get your, uh, your juices flowing in that kind of sense. And after they've spoken, I'll throw it wide open to the floor and encourage everybody um, to participate. Um, the, the focus of academy and salon discussions in particular is audience participation. Free speech is allowed. You don't have to, free speech is not enforced. There's no forced speech, um, but being able to participate uh, helps you clarify uh, your thoughts, because um, you have to articulate them, and it helps us clarify through additional points of view what we think. Um, and that's good. Clarity through debate is what we're aiming for. Preparing for this, I've, I've kind of looked at these two little pamphlets, which are kind of part of the series of Letters and Liberty, one on the Scottish question and one on, uh, sorry, my paper's flapping around there, one on uh, sovereignty. And I'll paste a link um, to, to those. They, I found them very helpful in terms of clarifying my thinking around this. And I'll post a link to them that people can get um, uh, from the Academy of Ideas. The Academy of Ideas supports this um, through their, their Zoom and their technological support. So if you feel, if you're so uh, inclined, you can make a financial donation. I think there'll be a, a, a link in the chat to that. And I'll also post the biographies of the, of the speakers in the chat as well. And one last thing before we press on, um, there's another event coming up soon next week, um, which is uh, titled 
Um, united we stand, uh, Ukraine and the West. And if people want to pursue these discussions that we kick off tonight and, and think of other points of view and uh, other aspects to the, the issue in Ukraine and what this means existentially for the West, um, that's an opportunity to do that next week. And there'll be a link in the, the chat for that uh, event as well. So with no further ado, I will kick off and invite James Hartfield to uh, share us his five to seven minutes thoughts on Ukraine and solidarity. James. Hi, and, and thank you, thank you. I'm uh, here in London, I'm, I'm that outrageous. Uh, and I'm, uh, I, I wasn't entirely sure what to think, so I've tried to work it out in points. So I think my first point would be, uh, we should support Ukraine's uh, fight for its self-determination. That Ukraine was invited by President Gorbachev to leave the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics um, uh, and they've been an independent country electing their own government uh, ever since. Uh, it's completely monstrous that they were invaded. It would be a disaster for any Democrat, any uh, movement for freedom uh, if Russia won. So that would be my first point. And because I'm talking uh, in Scotland, though I'm in London, um, I want to say in the, on the same score, Scotland also has a right to self-determination. And um, uh, in 2014, the uh, referendum uh, by a majority, but not a massive majority, decided that they would pursue that right through uh, uh, participation in the union with England, uh, Wales and Northern Ireland. Um, uh, and I think that's how I would have voted too, if I'm sure it is. But um, uh, if... Scotland had voted the other way, I would absolutely support their right uh, uh, to become an independent country. I think third, you know, looked at from the point of international relations, the main dynamic in this conflict is the decline in uh, Russian power. And I think we can see that across the world, that um, the reason there is conflict is because um, uh, uh, Russia's hinterland is less willing to um, uh, uh, support it. And it, it's worth saying that Ukraine pursued a very friendly relationship with Russia uh, uh, post-independence. Uh, and um, uh, unfortunately, that wasn't reciprocated. And we've seen that with the uh, incursions upon uh, Ukraine's uh, sovereignty in the Crimea uh, and in uh, 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 Donetsk. Uh, and in Luhansk and, um, you know, even before the current invasion, the nearest historical parallel and historical parallels are suspect, I, I want to say, would be the decline of the Ottoman Empire. And if you looked at that, you would see that um, uh, as nations emerge from out underneath the Ottoman Empire, there was tremendous dynamic towards conflict. But I think um, the right attitude then and now is to support the right of self-determination as the best um, moral framework uh, for establishing just and peaceful relations between nations. I think fourth, the, um, it's undoubtedly the case that NATO uh, has been uh, seeking to expand its influence as Russia declines. And um, uh, that said, Ukraine has a right uh, uh, to seek to join NATO. They have a right to ask for that. And, um, you know, when Ukrainians call for arms or for support from NATO, uh, people in the West who maybe were uh, 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 more critical of NATO are 
maybe misunderstand the point is you can't be saying to people who are fighting for their freedom no no you shouldn't take those arms those are suspect you shouldn't look for support and similarly i think lots of people in ukraine no doubt were delighted that boris johnson whatever we might think of him uh, went uh, uh, to kiev and uh, showed his support in that sense um and i'm sure they uh, they would have seen that propagandistic as it was, it was a statement of support, uh, which no doubt would have been very popular. I think uh, whilst we can see that NATO's played a role, it's important also, I think, that in recent times, uh, NATO's general attitude has been cautious rather than provocative. And if you look at the, uh, uh, the lead up to the war, you can see that you know, a lot of the courage that um, the Russian leadership got uh, uh, to take the action it did comes from a, a quietism and even a defeatism uh, in the West. And you can see that, uh, you know, no doubt the uh, Russian leadership were looking at the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, and even these uh, extraordinary comment by uh, Joe Biden, the US president, that, uh, you know, a small incursion wouldn't be that much of a problem. Uh, so and we can see that now that uh, America, which has been played a quite an extraordinary role of disrupting the world order since 1991, uh, from around um, uh, 2016, it's been a much more quietistic power. And um, uh, uh, because of the failure of its interventions in Iraq principally, but also in Afghanistan, uh, we can see that the, the US approach has been um, uh, tied down and that they've been unwilling to see change largely because they perceive that change will work against them uh, and they have a genuine uh, fear of that, uh, which is mixed up with a, 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 a also a moral sense of collapse. Um, so I think it's uh, my sixth point. The, the real conflict really arises because neither America nor Russia are strong. Um, uh, Russia is materially weak. It's got a gross domestic product somewhere between Spain's and Italy's. Uh, it, uh, but at the same time, it's got the largest number of nuclear warheads in the world and the fifth largest army. It's a military power, uh, but economically, it's a declining power. America, by contrast, is ideologically weak. Um, it's uh, everywhere in the world. It's uh, got massive commitments across the globe, but it's got a real sense that it's a distrusted, disliked power and, and a, quite a strong feeling uh, amongst uh, in the American intelligentsia, that it deserves to be disliked. Uh, uh, you know, seventh, I, th I think the um, people reasonably understand the war as a, a test of the international order. And leading Western nations at the moment are enjoying a kind of restoration of confidence that comes from being associated with Ukraine's resistance. And within the Western alliance, hard power is counted more than soft power. The European Union's consumerism is a poor contrast with Britain and America's uh, proxy belligerence. Uh, Russian exceptionalism looks a lot less uh, uh, strong today than it did uh, a year ago. I think the eighth is that uh, my eighth point, the West has had a good war so far. And um, a lot of people have drawn from that, people like Francis Fukuyama, that this is a fundamental reassertion of Western values against its challenges. Um, but stepping back from the immediate conflict, you'd have to say that the greatest threat to Western values in modern times hasn't come from 
outside, uh, but it's come from the West itself. And uh, one of the great problems is that the, um, uh, the Western powers have been too willing to invade other countries, to overthrow regimes, uh, and have shown scant regard uh, for Western values, let's say, uh, uh, for the sake of argument of democracy or free speech or civil rights. And we've seen that uh, in re recent times. So ninth, my last uh, point, I'd say, I, I don't think we should abandon the cause of freedom and self-determination as expressed in the uh, uh, Ukraine struggle for its independence uh, uh, to cynicism. Uh, just because we might be skeptical about the way that some of these slogans have been used by some of the actors, it's clear that people in Ukraine itself are fighting for their freedom. Uh, and in doing so, they make freedom and self-determination a real force in the world. Thanks, James. That was concise um, to time and uh, uh, illuminatory in, in that kind of sense. So, um, yes, we should use these, these, these contributions, these, these initial provocations to get people thinking. Eddie, can I come to you now? Uh, you're yeah. going to come from a different point of view. I'm very much going to come from a different point of view. I'm not an expert in international relations, uh, so I won't try and emulate what, what's just been said. Um, I am a, my background is in, uh, in political journalism in Scotland and then uh, as a kind of political advisor in Scotland, um, both for uh, Ruth Davidson and, and now for, I work for a think tank set up by Gordon Brown. <clears throat> so I'm going to come at this from this, from my perspective and in, in, in as, as somebody that's uh, spent most of my time in, in Scottish politics. Um, I think Simon invited me this evening because of a column I wrote uh, a few weeks back in the Scottish Daily Mail, uh, not long after the war began, uh, which focused on comments uh, by the SMP MSP, uh, Michelle Thompson. Uh, for those of you who have forgotten, a few days after the war began, uh, President um, of Ukraine, Vladimir uh, Zelensky, was pictured uh, signing an official application to join the European Union. And uh, Mrs. Thompson responded by tweeting that she was, quote, delighted for Ukraine. It just goes to show what political will can achieve. Remember this, Scotland. And in my column, I, I rather took her to task. I made the point that uh, Ukrainians, you know, at, at that point, huddling in cellars, avoiding bombs, were probably not much delighted about anything, uh, given the fact that uh, friends and family were uh, being killed and maimed around them. Um, and I also made the point, the wider point, that... Um, Mrs. Thompson's intervention was a, a kind of perfect example of what happens when the public square in Scotland, in this case, is dominated by one massive issue. In our case, in Scotland, uh, the debate over independence. Sometimes I think that just as the, uh, the Austrian diplomat Messinich was said to have asked of Talleyrand when he heard the French statesman had died, what did he mean by that? So I, I sometimes think we in Scotland have as our immediate reaction to just about anything that happens in the world. What does this mean for the case for the union and independence? And I felt Mrs. Thompson's response rather proved that. So to speak to the, the theme of this evening's discussion, I'd like to just make a few points about on the back of that piece about what I think the lessons can be for Scotland from, uh, from the war in Ukraine uh, over issues around sovereignty, self-determination and, and so on. Um, so let me just take a few a few quick points. Firstly, I think, as I suggested in the piece uh, about uh, Michelle Thompson, uh, to make the obvious point, I think the Ukraine crisis has rather served as a reminder of the dangers of insular thinking. And I'm really not here just 
pointing the finger at Scottish nationalists and pointing the finger at both sides in Scotland and indeed uh, to our wider political culture in the West as a whole now. Uh, thank, thanks in part, I believe, to social media, which rather traps us in our own silos of obsession. Uh, one of my favourite pieces of research after the conflict began brought together the many issues so the various people claimed that were, had been validated by the war, why Brexit was wrong, why Brexit was right, why a low-carb diet is necessary, why gender theory is bad. They've all been raised, uh, and, and the Ukraine war has all been, has all been uh, used to try and validate all of those various opinions. Uh, what that says to me, and I include myself in this, is that few of us, it seems to me, these days make, have the ability to make the mental leap to understand the historical and political context behind Putin's decision to invade. Instead, we try to fit, uh, fit it into the pre-existing frame through which we, uh, through which, uh, we have already, we see our, our own history and our own politics. It doesn't apply universally, however. I thought Michelle Thompson, while Michelle Thompson may have been found out uh, and some other uh, you know, nationalist figures in Scotland have made rather crass comparisons between UK and Russia. I actually think the SNP has for a large part come out of this pretty well. I, I can remember 25 years ago uh, when Alex Salmond made a rather embarrassing intervention on the war in Kosovo, uh, which only served up to show the SNP's uh, kind of naivety and uh, a kind of tactical myopia when it came to uh, foreign wars. Contrast that uh, position 25 years ago with the likes of uh, MP Stuart MacDonald, uh, my local MP, who actually, over the you know, years leading up to Ukraine, looked over the horizon, put in the spade work, and, and I think has been one of the more impressive uh, figures in Scotland and indeed the UK uh, as to the causes and analysing this. So while I'm not a supporter of in independence, I think one of the lessons uh, that has been shown over the last few month or so since this war began is when, uh, when SNP politicians focus on the substance of issues, not process, when they focus on strategy, not tactics, uh, they are going to help the cause along. So if that's a kind of record of Scottish politicians, Scottish public life over the conflict, what about some wider lessons for the country, uh, for Scotland, that is, uh, that the, the war has served? Firstly, I think it, uh, just two points here. Firstly, I think it's reminded us of the relevance of distinct factors of geography, of culture, of history. I'm not an expert on Ukraine at all, but to really understand this war, I've realised I've had to really dig deep into the deep story from within both Russia and Ukraine uh, to try and understand the history, the self-image of Russia, tensions within Ukraine, to recognize the slippery notion of sovereignty held within the region and the different claims to sovereignty held by many. And it's really only by reading into that that you can understand it, those distinct issues around geography, culture, and history. I think that clearly is important for us too in Scotland. There is a tendency within the pro-independence movement in Scotland to say, why can't we just become a normal country? Why can't we just become a normal European country? Just become like Denmark or Norway? Well, not to state the obvious, that's because we're not a normal country and because we're not Denmark and we're not Norway. And so just as Ukraine can't be disentangled from its history and the tension of facing both Easter Russia and Western Europe, so I believe Scotland can't be disentangled from our own complex history on the British Isles, whereas in Ukraine, questions of sovereignty and self-determination are contested. I think a peaceful and amicable resolution to Scotland, either in or out of the Union, demands that we recognise that. You can't just ignore your history or your geography, or you can, but if you do, then expect a backlash. And secondly, I think, and maybe slightly conversely to that point, 
I think at a time when we see aggressive nationalism literally on the march, and when we see the potential for Marie Le Pen to become French president, and, and we see nationalism on the rise across the world indeed, I think there is a window opportunity for Scotland to provide a really unique perspective on this. And perhaps this is the way to set out kind of solidarity uh, Simon was talking about in his introduction uh, with people in Ukraine, but also people elsewhere. As I say, I work with Gordon Brown now, and amongst many of the things he would like to do if he had the time is to set up an international centre in Scotland, which essentially kind of uses Scotland's story to debate and discuss how to navigate the tension between nationalism and international cooperation. He and we, as in the think tank, we don't support globalism. We don't support a world without borders. We don't also, but nor do we support independence either for Scotland. What we're interested in is how to find that right balance, where to be sure your first loyalties may, we, well, well, may well be to your communities and your nation, but where you also seek to cooperate and cede sovereignty when it's in your interests to do so. We argue that Scotland has done this pretty well over the last 300 years, and we think Scotland could contribute here to understanding, resolving any number of cases, whether that's in Ukraine, which of course has its own regions seeking independence, or in other states where the tension between our need for national identity and supranational cooperation is necessary. So to end my comments in an optimistic, if maybe naive note, perhaps from the ashes of Ukraine, we could see a renewed effort from nationalists and unionists in Scotland to come together set out, and to set out how Scotland can offer lessons to the world on how to negotiate difference and manage those tensions in a way that does not lead to people being shot outside their homes. Thanks. Eddie, thank you. That was really useful. Um, okay, um, we're going to just move on to Jacob now and have, have Jacob's contributions. And so, but before he speaks, people really need to start thinking about the kind of questions or the points they want to make in this discussion, because there are these, these, these notions, these concepts do need to be pulled apart a little bit. Jacob, over to you. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and thanks to Simon for inviting me. Thanks to uh, James and Eddie for two great uh, introductions that, that covered a, a lot of the ground that I'd, I'd be interested in following. So I'll, I'll try and restrict my marks to stuff they haven't covered. I mean, I begin, I guess, a little bit like James with a, what I consider to be a simple political fact, which is that no matter how imperfect its politics or how corrupt its economic or political system or how embroiled it has become in ongoing geopolitical struggles between great powers, Ukraine deserves, like every other country, the right to self-determination. Um, and I think it's particularly interesting for us because we see in the fierce resistance um, and in many cases the very voluntary mobilisation of the Ukrainian people that this spirit of self-determination has really strong roots in the Ukrainian people. And Putin's assertion, which we have to kind of grant, was also the assertion of many scholars and theorists and professional students of international relations, namely that Ukraine is not a real country, that it was hollowed out by Western meddling or coups, or that it was made weak by Western NGOs and gay pride parades, and that the corruption and the oligarchy that pervades the country would render it unable to organize military resistance. Um, that assertion has been proven thoroughly wrong. Um, and many of us, of course, I mean, will feel uneasy at some of the expressions that Ukrainian nationalism takes. I think even your most liberal Ukrainian soldier would probably in all likeliness have opinions that would get them canceled in polite 
Western society. Um, and the far right, of course, in its neo-Nazi form, has a real and important presence in Ukraine, even if its influence is often talked up as a, as a propaganda point. But the point here is that Ukraine deserves um, solidarity, not because it is a country of angels. No, it deserves solidarity because the bravery and heroism of Ukrainian people in defending their sovereignty illuminate the importance of a principle. And that principle transcends a minority of racists in the country and a minority of NGO stooges in the country too. And that principle is sovereignty, national self-determination, the right of a country to decide um, who governs it and how it's governed. And Ukraine doesn't need to be a perfect democracy to show its allegiance to the principle of democratic self-determination. Um, and the courage that has been shown in defense of these principles is what inspires us and what why I think Ukraine does deserve um, our solidarity. But that, of course, raises the question of, well, what does solidarity mean? What does it mean to show solidarity with Ukraine? Um, and I think it's important, it, in this case, important to use our words wisely. The word solidarity, firstly, I mean, it doesn't mean sympathy. And of course, it's hard to see the images and read the reports and not feel sympathy with those forced to flee their homes, uh, let alone those who have been shot or raped or robbed by occupying Russian forces. Sympathy is a natural response, but sympathy, at least in politics, can be also a dangerous force and overused appeals to sympathy can breed cynicism. And I'm sure that many people um, will feel some of this cynicism when they see their local council or some major business suddenly flying a Ukrainian flag, having freshly taken down an LGBT flag and replaced it with a Ukraine one. And that's sympathy. That's, that's kind of sympathy raised to a political level. And it ultimately becomes a kind of virtue signaling. It becomes a way of saying we, because we care about Ukraine, we're the good ones. And Russia and people who support Russia, they're, they're the evil ones. Um, and that kind of virtue signaling is empty and it can also be um, dangerous and the both sides of that I think are captured quite well in um, in the way that Joe Biden has broadly responded to the, uh, the responded to the war and his seems very eager to broadcast his emotions about Putin or to label things war crimes and, uh, and and genocide and Biden adopts a position of being more of the emotor in chief than the commander in chief um, not because he kind of secretly wants to depose Putin but because uh, offering his emotional responses has become easier than governing. And so virtue signaling in that sense is dangerous because it's replaced having a proper foreign policy. Um, and as, uh, as Eddie alluded to, comments saved from the SNP, I won't pretend to be an expert in Scottish discussions, but comments in the SNP show that solidarity too is not just about making it about yourself. It's not just a way of claiming that you're going through the same thing and that therefore uh, your, your situation is kind of identical. So if solidarity is not sympathy um, and should not be confused with virtue signaling, then, well, what is it? Um, well, the starting point, I think, is that solidarity lives in actions, not emotions. And those actions, of course, can take many forms. They're the actions of those innumerable thousands of people in Poland, Hungary or Romania who have taken in millions of refugees, most of them family, friends or acquaintances from Ukraine. There are those in the UK and elsewhere who've welcomed refugees, mostly complete strangers, and tried to help them find shelter and even rebuild their lives. And the I was, I was it was going to be the case that my only Scottish reference was, of course, 
to that um, football club and community who welcomed that busload of Ukrainian orphans. Um, and or there are also those who, uh, like my neighbours and the personal story here, that my family, family on my wife's side are Ukrainian and we've had a number of Ukrainians with us um, who fled from Ukraine and many of my neighbours and people we know and even in many cases people I don't even know but have pitched up in a variety of ways to help uh, people like me uh, who have given shelter to U Ukrainians or Ukrainian family. And then, of course, there have been all those stories of people organising aid convoys or other to undertaking other kinds of humanitarian in, uh, actions to help out uh, people either in Poland or on the border or indeed in Ukraine. Now, those are, of course, one kind of solidarity. But I think if we take seriously the idea that I opened with, that our solidarity for Ukraine lies in our shared commitments to national self-determination, that that is the core of the solidarity we feel for Ukraine, then in truth, solidarity should mean something more than just those kinds of humanitarian actions concerned with refugees, as noble as those actions and as essential as those actions are. So I think solidarity in this context um, lies in actions most likely to preserve and strengthen the commitment that we, we might say share with the Ukrainians to national self-determination and to sovereignty. In other words, sovereignty means giving Ukrainians the tools to defend their sovereign territory. And of course, military strategists can advise on the best way to do this and whether it's tanks or guns or planes or whatever it might be. In, and international relations experts too can help us walk the line between supporting Ukraine and over-provoking Russia. But the political imperative demanded by solidarity to help defend national self-determination, that political imperative is, I think, clear. Um, and I think this is especially true because the Ukraine question today has become a truly historic one. It's be become one that demands that we take a position on it. And whatever the forces that have got us here and no account, of course, as people have said, could leave out uh, the actions of NATO expansion or the plunder of the post-Soviet world. But no matter how we got here, we are seeing a new uh, world order, if you like, emerging and sitting this one out, um, as, as preferable as it might seem to some, that sitting it out is not an option. And thus far, the military successes of the Ukrainian forces have in some ways helped us avoid the really hard choices. Um, the success of Ukraine on the battlefield has made it easy for us to avoid having to have really hard conversations about the kind of support that might be required by Ukraine to continue defending its sovereign territory. Um, but as Russia masses troops for a new assault in the east, I think we have to answer the question of how far our solidarity will go. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jacob. That was brilliant. Um, so... People indicate, stick your hands up. I'll see you. I'll, I'll take you in the order that you indicate. Um, I think I think to get people thinking in, in terms of the way I've been trying to think about it is that these 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 four notions that we've outlined in terms of freedom, democracy, sovereignty, solidarity, do are, are contended, um, uh, uh, contentious, and 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 can be applied in different ways. So there's there's not a lexicon there that can't sit across the Scottish independence question quite comfortably for, for many people. So I think when, when you're making your points, it's worth trying to just trying to kind of pull apart some of these notions and what you actually mean by them um, uh, when contributing. And, 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 and people have the chance to come back in um, to, to answer kind of questions or takedowns as they occur. 
So I've got I've got two people indicating first of all. So I, what I'll do is I'll I'll, I'll say the person who's going to speak and then the person who's going to speak after them so that they can prepare. So first of all, Stuart Waiton, and then after Stuart uh, Carlton Brick. Stuart. So like lots of people, I imagine I've been on YouTube and watching these old YouTube um, videos of professors and American professors, interestingly, who. Uh, were raising concerns about the West's role prior to the conflict. Um, and so well, I've got two questions. First one is, uh, to the extent that you know about this, um, is what does the Ukrainian population think uh, in terms of what I mean by this is, for example, one of the videos was looking at the Ukraine and it was as if half the Ukraine towards the east was kind of pro-Russian-ish and the more went to the west, less so. And so my uh, query is to what extent do the people in the east, uh, to what extent are they, do they see themselves as Ukrainian and are fighting against Russia? And to what extent are they inviting Russia in? Because I get no sense of this from what I read. So there just seems to be a kind of Ukrainian flag framework for the media's discussion. So they'll show, well, they don't even show fighting most of the time. They just show the repercussions of fighting. So we don't see much fighting. Um, and I'm wondering to what extent Ukraine is actually a bit more like Ireland and Northern Ireland and whether there's actually a significant amount of the Ukrainian population who uh, are in favour of Russia and is it just that we're not hearing that or is that just not the case because from my watching of these videos it did seem that there was this genuine split and you just get absolutely no sense of that whatsoever which would obviously complicate things massively. Uh, my second question is about NATO and what it is and what its purpose is um, especially now, uh, today on the news, it was saying uh, Sweden and Finland are thinking about joining NATO. Now, from my left-wing background, I just always thought of NATO as America, essentially, with everybody else uh, following along. Um, with Britain in particular, would always try and sort of try and act strong by you know following America most vociferously. Um, but I don't really understand NATO now. I don't really understand what its what its role is. Nobody seems to question its existence, and its constant expansion just seems to be seen as some kind of democratic uh, framework. Which, you know, that that confuses me a little bit, as I've never really thought of American military intervention as being particularly democratic uh, much of the time. And it now also seems to be tied in with the EU, so there seems to be a kind of link between being in the EU. And being in NATO, and I'm, I'm not very impressed by the EU either as a body that defends democracy and national independence. So um, I'm curious about what NATO is, um, uh, I suppose, politically now. Thank you, Stuart. So um, after Carlton, we'll have Penny. Carlton. Hi. hi. Um, a couple of questions. Uh, one kind of following on from what, what Stuart was talking about and kind of relating to uh, something that Eddie raised in his uh, <coughs> introduction. Um, I actually thought that Salmon's position on Kosovo was probably one of the more principled things that he's 
ever done in his political career in, in opposing uh, NATO intervention. So I just wonder, kind of, is, it, is that a legitimate um, comparison between uh, the Balkan crisis and what's going on in Ukraine today? Because there does seem to be a sense from people who, who are opposed to uh, supporting uh, the Ukraine's right to self-determination. They see it as a Western NATO-led uh, elite war. And I, I, I kind of think there's something new about what's going on in, in, in Ukraine. Um, and that leads me to my kind of second question, which is a half point, half, half question. Um, whilst I'm opposed to Scottish independence, I'm actually for their right to self-determination. So I think there is a there's a kind of danger that we mix up um, uh, these terms. I don't see Scottish independence as the same as the fight for uh, self-determination, because Eddie argues that um, we should cede sovereignty when it's in our interest. And I kind of don't see ever ceding sovereignty in anybody's interest. Thanks, Carlton. It's, it's just supposed to follow up in that. In terms of, are you looking at uh, national sovereignty and uh, uh, personal sovereignty. Are you are you trying? Are you just drawing a distinction between those two things? Well, I, I don't really see a distinction between the two fundamentally. But you know, the kind of one is not the same as the other. But one is dependent on the other. Yeah. Okay. Right. Thanks. So, right after Penny, we'll have Alex. The day before the Russians invaded, I was on the BBC um, debate night program. It was in Edinburgh um, in the audience. And I remember being quite shocked by the fact that um, the political representatives on the panel, um, and there was Tory Labour and uh, SNP, um, seemed completely unprepared uh, for the emerging war uh, in Ukraine. They seemed to almost feel across the political um, spectrum that somehow this wasn't a question that affected them directly it wasn't something that they needed to take responsibility for and I think that's a very interesting thing to reflect on and I was thinking about what Eddie Eddie was saying and I, I you know I share his dislike of Michelle's response to the thing but I kind of felt that her crassness was the kind of childish way that she saw it as a score for those that support the European Union but I quite like the fact that she was prepared to express an opinion about it. Um, and and I suppose this idea that Nicola's had a good war just as she had a good COVID because um, she's recognised the need not to escalate or she's recognised the need um, to be diplomatic is something that I can't quite get my head around um, because... It's, it's, it's an interesting sort of tension here because um, it seems like Scotland says it wants to be a nation and we're led by a political party that says that it wants national self-determination. And yet there's a kind of real uh, lack of familiarity even with the question of what it means to be a nation or to articulate your national interest. And I, and I find that really fascinating. Like Stuart, obviously, we do do the YouTube thing. Um, and the guy that has really sort of um, made a lot of sense to me is the American guy, I want to say, Hertz, Hertz Mir. 
anybody know who I'm talking about? Hurts me. Anyway, one of the one of the American academics that's spoken a lot. And he's really interesting because he sort of said, well, the world is divided at the moment between 19th century people and 21st century people. And President Xi and Putin and the Iranians, they're kind of 19th century people in that they have a strong sense of nationalism and they uh, <clears throat> articulate it, but that they also believe in uh, the balance of power in terms of international relations, that that's something that has to be managed and negotiated. Uh, and they recognize that, you know, that will be negotiated through military activity and through political activity. Whereas the 21st century people, who as you say, are the people running Washington, and I would say to a certain extent, are the people running Scotland, they're kind of shocked <laughs> by a situation in which your national interest has to be articulated on the international arena. They find it quite uncomfortable. And if you hear any of the Americans talking about what's important to them at the moment, they don't talk about national political interest. They talk about the rule of law. Even the military guys always talk about the rule of law uh, as if somehow uh, to express your national interest is, is, is highly problematic. I'm, I'm just really interested in this idea of how politicians uh, respond to the national question. I'd, I'd like Eddie in particular to, to just reflect on whether it's possible to be a 19th century person and a 21st century person at the moment, and whether the Scottish government isn't kind of caught in this 21st century position where it can't actually, interestingly, can't even properly express Scotland's national interests except for um, in the negative position of saying we'd like to be part of NATO or we'd like to be part of the EU. Very long, convoluted question, but I hope I hope people sort of get a sense of what I'm talking about. Thanks, Penny. Um, so I have Alex next, but after Alex, what I'll do is I'll go back to our panel and just get them to share thoughts um, and, and answer any questions directly of them um, on the discussion so far. So, Alex. Thanks, Simon. Um, I'm not sure how long my connection will last. I keep getting kicked out of the forum um, because of my unstable um, doodah, but I'll have a go. <laughs> um, I'm kind of going to be quite basic here, but because it's basic, I don't think it's unimportant. Um, I think the clue to this question, um, what has the Ukraine got today with Scotland, um, is in the question of self-determination. To me, self-determination, the concept, the very concept of it, suggests at its core that there's an absence of an ability to determine your own future. So it's not about war, it's not about being invaded, but it's about um, the inability um, to um, determine your own future. So if I wanted to make a, 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 a simple distinction between the national question in Ukraine and the national question in Scotland, I think I'd say simply that the Ukrainian people um, are being denied, quite fundamentally, their ability to de determine their future. Whereas in Scotland, Scottish people are not denied 
by anybody to determine their own future. They already determine their own future. And so, as I say, it's a simple point, but it seems to get lost quite a lot. Thanks, Alex. I can hear the screams and howls of protest at what you just said. Last night, there was a party political broadcast on the telly. Um, it was last night by the SNP. And it was basically anti-Tory. It was an anti-Tory um, kind of thing. So there is a sense. There is a sense that, that although they have a vote and they return people to Westminster, they're not determining their own future. And, and you know, whether there's an illegitimacy to that, um, you know, we, we can pull apart. So, so um, James, we'll come to you first and, and we'll kind of just in terms of the order that you spoke in. Have you got any initial thoughts so far? Well, I thought um, uh, Stuart's question is good. Um, and uh, I, I think it's definitely true that uh, uh, in the Ukraine polity in the, the years between independence and 20, uh, and the current invasion, there's no doubt that, um, you know, there were people fighting on the one hand for a pro-Russia policy and on the other hand for a pro-Western policy. And it wasn't at all uh, decisive between them as to, to which would win out. And it caused a lot of, um, uh, you know, conflicts that wasn't being mediated very effectively. Uh, um, and I, th I think the thing is that the, it's the Russian invasion which has clarified everything. Um, uh, the Russian invasion tells you a couple of things. One, it tells you is that the Russians are completely out of control or, or wildly misunderstood what was uh, happening. Uh, and the other thing is that it, it tells you is that you know, enough Ukrainians are um, uh, dissatisfied with their, um, with their preceding position in the world of a somewhat qualified, uh, I mean, formal independence, but um, uh, uh, with a very heavy uh, pro-Russian uh, foreign policy that was uh, the agreement uh, that had been achieved diplomatically between the two uh, sides. But I think the, the military interventions, I think the loss of Crimea, uh, which is uh, humiliating, but uh, uh, something of a fait accompli, I think the incursions in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk really made it a lot more difficult as a Ukrainian to be uh, pro-Russian. And the invasion has kind of clarified it. And you only have to think like, if the English response uh, to the uh, Scottish referendum had been to invade, um, then I guess um, uh, we'd be looking at an independent Scotland by now, or at least a Scotland fighting for its independence. And that would be a coherent position, I want to say, um, uh, in the point, the way that Alec makes the point. Um, uh, um, and, uh, obviously, it's, it comes from a degree of... Uh, you know, high Tory confidence um, that instead of um, sending the troops and you, you just keep negotiating and um, slowly bleed your enemy dry. Um, and I think this, this is a good, the great uh, challenge and problem for the SNP is that uh, in truth, they do represent Scotland, you know, um, and uh, they keep getting elected and they, they are representative of Scotland. Um, my battery is running low, that's not good. They do represent uh, Scotland, they represent the fact uh, that it's not determined to be free. You know, that the SNP position is not independence. It's, it's always, you know, at some point we'll, we'll fight for our independence, but in the day to day, it's to fight for the best deal within the, um, the United Kingdom. And it's a very much like those old fashioned uh, left-wing parties used to have two policies. Uh, they would have the, the, the maximum program, which is, you know, socialism, uh, and uh, abolish all 
property. And then the, the minimum program, which was their actual program, which was, um, uh, you know, a, a penny off the, the rates or something like that, something rather more modest. And I think that's the, the difficulty. And you can see that a, an actual self-determination policy would have been Albert's. You know, that was the put to the, uh, the Scottish people. And it just it had to fall flat. But of course, it would have been more coherent. Um, uh, so, you know, I mean, the, the, all these things are for uh, people in Scotland to work their way through. But uh, I think, you know, for the meantime, anyway, we're, we're obviously going to have what we've had for a long time, which is an SNP um, government in uh, Scotland and um, uh, an insufficient number of um, people willing to vote for independence. Thanks, James. So, Eddie? Um, sorry, I've scribbled down quite a few things there just that were raised, <laughs> but I'll try to just kind of run through them. Um, Come I mean, on, the co on Kos Kosovo, I mean, I, I obviously just have a disagreement, I guess, with um, Clayton on the uh, on the rights or wrongs of that that particular issue. Um, I guess my point was, I guess the point I'm trying to make more is that, again, maybe I, I may be wrong, but I felt that the at the time that a lot of that decision making was around a kind of tactical attempt at difference. Um, SNP staking out a different position in the context of an election campaign uh, back in 1999, I seem to remember. Um, whereas it seems to me these days, and I'm a slightly unusual position here of almost being a defender, <laughs> defender of the SNP, which is not my usual uh, place, but that they are trying to kind of, it seems to me, decouple uh, their foreign policy from tactical advantage in the in the short term, uh, and in doing so, are kind of reflecting what the reality of an independent Scotland would be, which is very very close to England still, and very very close to the United Kingdom still. You could not get away from that in, in independent Scotland, and it's very nice having the fantasy, you know, nuclear weapons free, uh, a new kind of Switzerland, you know. But the reality is that Scotland would not be like that. It would be still very much connected to the to the rest of the United Kingdom and still very much part of that uh, that network. And it seems to me that bringing that uh, reality into their foreign policy is something that I think is um, it, you know is something to be recognised at the very least. Um, uh, sorry, I'm jumping around from one thing to another here. The the uh, the point I really I really. Uh, get the point about the, the self-determination thing and the difference between you know the difference between opposing independence and oppose and you know to oppose independence is not to oppose the right to self-determination and clearly that is a massive issue for us at the moment. Sorry, we're not talking about Ukraine here at all, though, are we? But how do we how do we measure self-determination in the in eight years? Only eight years after we've had a we had a referendum on on self-determination. Etc. Um, you know, Ukraine, yes, brings that back into vivid, vivid light. Um, I think one of the problems we've had in the, you know, I've obviously been involved in the pro-union side, is that we've blurred that message. We've we've we've, we've been against both independence, and we've appeared to be against both self-determination over the last uh, few years, and with it with with the result that a lot of people in the middle of this debate might might be slightly deterred by that. And I think that's a a continuing debate. Um, my my um my view on self determination and like when there should be another second referendum it's a little bit like a spaceship um, I can't tell you what it looks like but I'll know it when I see it 
and uh, we'll we'll kind of know it uh, when it come when it comes along. And just on the point of ceding sovereignty, I mean that's for my my view that's what the union is. I mean the union is about ceding sovereignty. Uh, you know we cede sovereignty, we pool and share sovereignty in order to because we think cooperation works, and that's 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 my that's my take on it. And you know the question is always, I guess, where should sovereignty lie? Uh, should it lie with the European Union? We decided not. Fine. Um, but um, uh, but for me, you know, the union, you know, is about ceding sovereignty. That's that's almost the that's almost its first US. That's almost its USP. Have I answered everything? I can't remember if I answered everything. But anyway, I'll move on. Thanks, Eddie. Um, yeah. Okay. Right, Jacob. Yeah, the, the, I won't add much to the question about east east west divide in Ukraine, other than to say that it has changed and evolved over time, and you can track those changes in. The, the polling and the, the way that they've returned different MPs from different regions. And that Zelensky, when elected, was the first president of Ukraine to really break the East-West divide in Ukrainian politics. And he was returned with large majorities all across the country, with the slight exception of uh, in and around Lviv, which was still pro-Poroshenko. But the point being was that he represented changes that were afoot in Ukrainian society that the east-west divide was becoming less and less salient for people for the resource some of the reasons that uh james has outlined to do with the war and you only have to really look at the fact that in 2014 there was a sizable uh pro-russia pro set up an independent state movement in kharkiv that stood ahead that stood within a decent shot of succeeding and turning kharkiv into something like the independent republics in uh, donetsk and, and elsewhere that and yet now Kharkiv kind of changed, kind of challenged all the predictions and is now the seat of serious Ukrainian independence uh, against Russia. And that that's a fundamental transformation in Ukrainian uh, society that has to do with some of the things that James outlined. Um, uh, the, the, the point raised about the... Uh, unpreparedness of our of our politicians is is a really interesting one especially given that they were supposedly the ones forecasting the war for a long long time and i mean in, in my own personal experience or uh, as we've seen with regards to the question of refugees and people in the uk trying to take refugees it's like the home office has been part is that and the government's forecasting for months and months and months there's going to be a huge war and then when there's suddenly what a surprise there's loads of refugees from the war but the home office is like acts as if this is the first that they've heard of it and it kind of shows you the um i think it shows you two things one this like deep unseriousness in in government with regards to geopolitical um uh, issues and two it does put paid to the lie that there was some uh, plan afoot to uh, use Ukraine as, as as a kind of weapon against Russia, and that really the the response of Western elites would have been, and it's about to take Biden as an example again, but like especially Biden, you feel would have been much more comfortable if Ukraine had fallen very quickly. Indeed, he almost encouraged it, tried to make it happen by forecasting it so often, tried to get Zelensky out of there as quickly as possible so that the country would fall. You you almost think. And then it would have been very easy for the Western elites to have gone, oh, isn't it a disaster? Russia, uh, they're so nasty. They've invaded this country. Oh, we couldn't do anything about it. What a shame. And actually, the prolonging of the conflict and the Ukrainian resistance has thrown up questions which the elites um, across the West are kind of, in many cases, ill-prepared to answer. Although, I must say, those countries that, I mean, Britain has obviously been at the, for the, at the, has been at the forefront of 
supplying arms and support to Ukraine. And that's certainly how Zelensky sees it. And it is interesting in that respect that uh, countries outside have worked outside of the EU and have worked outside of NATO to show support uh, for Ukraine. And, and the, the countries that have been effective of those have kind of bypassed those formal uh, alliances or organizations that maybe you might think now are slightly um, uh, unfit for purpose. The, the final point, I like this contrast that Penny gave about the 19th and 21st century powers. And to me, that suggests, as it were, I mean, the 19th century powers, I wouldn't necessarily say that they, as, as maybe you did, Penny, that they, they respect the nation or something. They're imperial powers, certainly. And it's almost as if the missing middle between these 19th century powers that are kind of imperialistic and carve the world up and the 21st century powers that would rather we all just kind of jetted around and go on holiday to different countries and all the rest of it. Between those, there's the missing middle, which Ukraine illustrates very nicely, which is the nation. And that's the kind of missing force in international politics. And one of the reasons why it's so important that we uh, offer Ukraine the, the support that it needs, because it does embody that, that important principle of national self-determination. Thanks, Jacob. Right. So there's a few more hands here um, uh, and, and I'll, I'll just go straight out to them. So first of all, we've got uh, Rob and, and we'll have uh, Stuart Baird following Rob. Uh, hello. Yes. Um, so um, just following on a bit from what Penny uh, said as well, I'd be interested in comments on the, um, the, the, the role of NATO in the, in the sort of the past few years. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's people like John Mearsheimer in America, the sort of realists, uh, also Stephen Waltz um, is another one, uh, who argue that um, NATO has, um, the, West, the West has been um, too keen to talk up Ukraine coming into the fold of being part of NATO and part of the EU, and that's provoked Russia, and that was... Um, was just naive about what the reaction to Russia of Russia would be, and that's been disastrous. Um, does that matter anymore? I mean, um, I, I, I think James said, has that now just just been resolved in favour of the fact that the people of Ukraine have now made a decision? They want to be part. They do want to look west, um, and therefore that whatever the circumstances that brought about the war, uh, no longer matter it's it's now about ukrainian sovereignty um and it, i mean i was struck reading something on twitter about just how poor ukraine is after all this time of sort of looking east that is i think it has a gdp about a fifth of that of poland which is a fairly similar population um and that they're probably more and more people in ukraine are looking west and thinking if we could have a bit of that, we would be a lot better off. So um, is that, should we now just support that wholeheartedly, their, their desire to be in the EU, be part of NATO and all that sort of stuff? Um, uh, yeah, and I mean, while, while, you know, while I obviously desperately want Ukraine to win, I hope that's obvious anyway, um, at the same time, um, I do worry about a long walk because you know, Ukraine could win, but in the circumstances where there's not a lot of Ukraine left, certainly in the East, we, we, obviously we see Mariupol, the disaster that's struck there, but there's plenty of other places as well, like Kharkiv, that have been very badly uh, damaged by 
uh, this war and if it were to, to rumble on and on and on for months and even years, um, that could set the whole country back a long way. I mean, we're, we're like tying ourselves up in knots about replacing some cladding on some buildings. Um, and they've, they've seen mass destruction of their homes and factories and hospitals and whatever. The recovery process as it stands is, is huge enough. So to what extent do we say, can, can we as outsiders look and say, you know, it'd be better if somehow you could settle this um, and worry about the, the long-term damage to the country as well? Thanks, thanks, Ron. Before I go to Stuart Baird, just I'm, I'm conscious that there's been some quite weighty contributions and people are well informed in terms of that, but it's okay to ask questions too. The, the whole question thing, just, just asking simple questions is no, there's no shame in that. I'm sitting here with loads of questions I just don't know the answers to. Um, uh, I mean, particularly, particularly just to kind of, I suppose, abuse the chair slightly, that the point I tried to make with Carlton there about sovereignty is, is that the, the, the personal sovereignty, it seems to be for the people, is, is separated in Scotland from the national sovereignty for the managers. Uh, the SNP seem to be quite keen on having um, uh, power for themselves, but at the same time in some of the, the political campaigns I've been involved in, we've had to battle them as they try and take uh, power away from us. So the sovereignty question is quite an interesting one in terms of Scotland, uh, whilst it seems fairly straightforward in terms of Ukraine. But so, so, um, so that, yeah, a question there just to kind of chuck it out. Uh, after Stuart Baird, we've got Jeff. Uh, you know, when you, when you, we see our leaders quickly rallying to the Ukrainian flag, uh, I get a sense of being pretty uncomfortable because in general, you know, I don't trust them to do very much whether that's Boris jetting off to Kiev or Nikola and her Holyrood Palace, much of their uh, you know, strategies and policies that have been impacting on us are, are not ones that we would be uh, supporting them much with. But for some reason, they've all rallied to the Ukrainian flag. So that makes me quite uncomfortable and, and somehow cynical as to, to, to why they, they seem quite happy with fads and fashions and uh, mention made of hoping it's a short war because uh, that's about the length of time that these politicians seem to have their attention span measured in uh, minutes and minutes and a few days perhaps uh, so certainly uh, un being uncomfortable uh, having to sit alongside Nicola and Boris uh, and then particular in regards to the SNP and national sovereignty because we have this element of uh, national sovereignty, but national sovereignty doesn't really seem to be something the SNP is particularly interested in. Uh, they're certainly not pressing for any nationalist separation from England any day particularly soon. They've been in power. They've had their, their majority or, or minority government is it, uh, for some time, but certainly not being to be pressing for a, any quick second referendum. It always seems to be uh, some time in the future. Uh, and this idea of their own national sovereignty seems to be just, uh, you know, in terms of Scotland, seems to be just moving it on from, from, one, uh, from one super state to another, from the, the Union to the, the EU. So, again, this plays a little bit into what Simon's been mentioning as to into what sovereignty actually might mean in Scotland, both at the, the, the governmental and at the individual level, because as we've seen, uh, much of the, the SNP policy has been based on suppressing sovereignty, suppressing the sovereignty of the individual or individual rights, whether it's uh, 
their intrusions into various family lives, their lockdown, their alcohol pricing. Uh, much of SNP policy is based on managing the individual. Uh, so the, the, the idea of national sovereignty uh, for Scotland and for the SNP seem, doesn't seem to match much up with perhaps what national sovereignty might mean for a Ukrainian. Uh, there seems to be quite a difference there. Uh, I'm no expert on what individual sovereignty might be in Ukraine. But just to move on a little bit, another area I'm quite uncomfortable with is the entire the, the global issue of, of NATO expansionism and uh, its ongoing you know, uh, desire to, 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 to gather more countries up. Uh, you know, NATO played its part in the Cold War and then afterwards it's managed to, to almost like a jet set around Eastern Europe, uh, gathering up all these small, smaller states, uh, perhaps no, no offence to any Polish out there. Uh, so the question is why? Why have they been at it? Why, why is NATO? I don't, I don't also think we can say that NATO has been very successful in much it's done. But again, NATO, we're flying the flag for NATO. Uh, let's not... Uh, underestimate, as, as everyone's made clear, the horrors and, and, and despicable actions of, of the Russian state and the, the, their invasion. Uh, what, what we see on TV is, is absolutely horrendous. Uh, and no one, no one can be happy about what's going on. But uh, we have to think also about where, where, where we can find some sort of, as Eddie would suggest, a compromise. Where are we going to find the, the golden bridge that can allow Russia to retreat across and feel as if they have gained something from from the last, you know, month, two months, or as Rob said, possible fears the next several years. Uh, where is the compromise going to be, and uh, where does national sovereignty end in that regards for Ukraine trying to gather it all back? Because obviously they they lost Crimea. Uh, where where is a somehow a compromise going to be reached there? Thanks, Stuart. Okay, so um, after Jeff, we'll go to Penny and then we'll go back to the panel for their thoughts, okay? Jeff. Thanks, Simon. It's a very interesting discussion. Uh, some very interesting questions there, Stuart. I mean, my plea would be to be critical rather than cynical in terms of the leaders, because I think it's right to say what has NATO been doing in Eastern Europe in 20 years and why has it done all these things? But at the same time, that's slightly different from what's happening now when there's a liberation war. You have to separate that from the liberation war, but they're perfectly legitimate questions. Again, asking what various different politicians are trying to do in the different thing, but again, try and separate it from the basic of the war, because there is a, a tendency or maybe an instinct to be a bit cynical of things. And I'd say, try and be critical. Uh, you know, you might be very critical of the government over one thing, but maybe over this issue, they're actually, you know, Boris going to Kiev, a lot of people slag him off, but maybe it was good. Yes, it's a PR thing, but maybe it's a good thing to do to show solidarity. I, I certainly have no problem with him doing it, whereas in a different situation, I might be very critical of him. But that's that. Just on Penny's point earlier, my, see, one of the reasons I think this struggle in Ukraine is so important, well, how it's looked at 19th, 21st century, and I historically, somebody be very critical of the West, but it is a country fighting for democracy and sovereignty um, and those values against what, you know, China and Russia, or Russia immediately and China, which is like an autocratic hub in the eastern part of the world. And it, it, there is developing possibly 
arguably something to discuss or think about. You know, you have the democratic Europe or West or however you look at it, to trying to or a section of it passionately trying to defend itself against autocracy, um, and that to me is quite an important thing to do. You know, R Russia might not be a global superpower; it might just be the regional power that it is, but it's an autocratic power trying to impose itself on, on you know, towards the West, towards Western Europe. That's important to, to fight against, as is the struggle for national liberation. And people have talked about the bravery and hero, heroism of the, uh, uh, you know, of the people of Ukraine. So that, uh, you know, that, that's part of it as well. But because of that, those things are, you know, are, are very important um, to support. And I would, that's why I think the whole negotiation thing is very difficult because Putin himself has said there's no more negotiations talks are at an end and people still say well we've got to have more talks but it's quite difficult when you have Russia which is largely autocratic basically deciding it's going to take over its neighbor on whatever it costs you know whatever it takes at the end of the day you either give up or fight back and it would be nice if it was a middle way and it'd be nice if it was serious diplomacy like there might have been in a past period which is another issue but there doesn't seem to be any diplomacy. So you just have to fight and support the fight. That's my view. And also looking at the military people, which I, I know very little on the military side, but military people say, even though Russia has strength in numbers and resources and all the rest of it, um, it ha it's not an overwhelming force and it can still be beaten. It's Everything is to play for, which is why I still think that's important. The final thing, very quickly, Stuart asked this point at the beginning, and it's something that I just don't understand. Uh, he was talking about American academics. My experience is that most people in Britain from all different kinds of walks of life are very sympathetic to the U Ukrainian cause and support, can see what's happening, can support the fight for independence. But a lot of people in academia seem to have a problem with it and seem to think, as far as I can see, very well-educated people come up with never-ending uh, a, a number of excuses why it's just too complicated, it's all too violent, there's all this history of as often this and that. There's a hunt, whenever you, whenever you win an argument over 10 excuses, there's another 50 raised as why you shouldn't support the struggle. And to me, I, I mean, there's, you know, there's not a lot you can do, but that's definitely a problem in, in, in UK academia where people will not bite the bullet and see what is happening in front of our eyes. And yes, that's a problem, but I just think we have to recognise it. Thanks, Jeff. So Penny and then back to the panel. I've got another question for the panel about what, what they think will happen. Um, but I suppose it's also connected to that question of um, what's, what's possible in terms of solidarity. So. There's a lot of people saying at the moment that um, Russia doesn't want to invade Ukraine. It's not, it was never Russia's strategy and it's not um, its strategy, but it has to ruin Ukraine um, because either Ukraine is a neutral state by choice, and that's something that's negotiated between Russia and the West and Ukraine, or it's a, a neutral state out of necessity and that it's 
that its economy and its and its people are destroyed. And it, it looks to me increasingly like that is the option that Ukraine, as somebody's already said, already has a very low economic base. Um, it will be engaged in a, a long drawn out war, which will um, you know, really bring a sort of barbaric level of brutality to the lives of ordinary ordinary people. I'm interested to see what you think about that, whether it's sort of like it's neutrality from one side or, or another, if you like, neutrality against your will or, or neutrality by choice, whether that's the choice that's facing the Ukrainians at the moment. And then that sort of raises the question um, of what solidarity might mean or be in that situation. I mean, could ordinary people in Scotland raise money for the Ukrainians to buy guns? Or is that the most sort of um, <laughs> sort of naive view of the world? I'm just thinking that if, if they're caught between a rock and a hard place, between belonging to NATO and uh, being in a constant war with Russia or uh, acclimatizing to Russia, but uh, through uh, by, by force through destruction of their of their society, um, then our response to that shouldn't be to allow NATO and the Western institutions to claim that they are the promoters of democracy. It's just the Ukrainians that are fighting for democracy, as far as I can see. And it happens to be that NATO is in giving military assistance at the moment. But in the current situation, the longer this war goes on, it seems that all we can do is charity. The only position that we can have to give in solidarity, if, if the strategy of the Russians is to destroy Ukraine, will be increasingly pitiful and miserable charity, which will be very frustrating. Is there any other mechanism uh, through which we could express our solidarity um, without in any sense giving an ideological support to the idea that the West represents uh, a genuine uh, democratic alternative to the authoritarianism of the Russians. Thanks, Penny. I mean, it, for me for me as well, that is that question of jeopardy as well. Does, you know, it, it, I mean, it's not an essential aspect of solidarity, but at some point there has to be a look, you have to be able to go further than wearing a sticker or putting up a flag and you know, even filling minibuses with food and and and, and other things. You know, that there, there there might need to be some level of danger to people who want to show solidarity with Ukrainians, and and you know this idea that we can never stand up, ultimately stand up to another power that has nuclear weapons, might be you know is a green light to China to take over Taiwan or or, or whatever, um, and and so you know it might mean that we need to just fight the bullet and, and run the risk of becoming drawn into a conflict to be able to show uh, solidarity uh, with Ukrainians. I'll go, I'll go to the panel and then I've got Stuart Waiton uh, wanting to speak after that. Um, and there's, there's nobody indicating after Stuart. So um, if you've got questions, get them in, get them ready, just blurt them out. No shame. So uh, we'll go to James, uh, Eddie and, and Jacob in that order again. James. Well, I think on the question of being uh, not prepared, uh, uh, you know, Maya culpa, um, I didn't think uh, Russia was going to invade Ukraine. And um, <laughs> not pointing any fingers, uh, pretty sure that uh, uh, Spiked Online uh, was running articles right up uh, to the invasion, saying it was very unlikely that there would be an invasion. Um, 
And I think that's partly because uh, properly uh, people were concerned about uh, anti-Russian chauvinism in Britain, which is a real force and, um, uh, you know, are alive to, to where that leads. And, uh, you know, it's pretty distraught, um, distressing to see, you know, friends of mine have, have gone back to Russia because they're basically their bank accounts stopped working. And I want to say, I'm not talking oligarchy. I'm talking about just ordinary people who um, are were treated appallingly, and um, uh, you know that is a real issue. Um, so um, that's the first thing. I think on trying to understand NATO, I think this is important too because you know NATO's role in many conflicts has been really destructive, and people who say you know I don't want to be on NATO's side are entirely right. That makes perfect sense to me that uh, I don't want to be on NATO's side. You know, if you think about, uh, you know, some of the NATO interventions around the world, uh, I can understand that. But I think you have to understand uh, why somebody who'd been living under the uh, shadow of uh, Russian influence might take more or less the opposite view. Um, and the reasons that um, uh, Ukrainians, uh, are, you know, are really kind of pushing NATO to be more involved, uh, I, uh, it's the same as, you know, all the other countries in Eastern Europe that uh, uh, join NATO, uh, like Estonia and um, Latvia and um, uh, Poland. And um, in some ways, you'd have to say that the, the, uh, the, the growth of NATO didn't really come from America. It came from those countries. I mean, obviously, opportunistically, as uh, not, not just America, but Britain and uh, other leading powers within NATO, uh, were, were thrilled that uh, all these East Europeans were, as it were, queuing up because, uh, you know, the, what we thought was this cantankerous and ridiculous old organisation um, uh, turned out to be like really popular in the East. And um, the only way you can understand that is that um, uh, it's a real issue um, if you're part of the former communist bloc uh, uh, that, uh, you know, Russia is imposing upon you. And, and that's really the drive uh, that's building the thing. I think it's um, uh, in terms of, um, uh, you know, how important it is to us. I think the, the thing that's important to us is the democracy question. So, um, you know, when we say, I'm not sure that I could get, go with the idea that, you know, um, uh, virtue lies in the West and, and evil, uh, as it were, lies in the East, uh, notwithstanding the, the current conflict, because we've seen that that's not always the case. Uh, that the uh, the invasion of Iraq, the invasion of Afghanistan, um, uh, these were not uh, uh, examples of um, the export of democracy. They were the, on the contrary, they were the um, the shattering of the principles of self determination, uh, which in many ways were the model uh, uh, for um, uh, Putin and uh, have, have promoted this uh, rail politique. I think where I'd be more critical of the the Mearsheimer position is it turned out to be not that realistic. You know, I think um, the trouble with Mearsheimer's uh, uh, point, you know, don't poke the, Ru the Russian bear, is that how long did he think that people were going to go on qualifying their ambitions uh, uh, to uh, facilitate uh, Russia's self-esteem in the world? Obviously, from the, the point of view of statesmen, uh, you know, and this, this is why I was thinking of this analogy with um, how, how did Europeans manage uh, Turkish Ottoman decline. Um, uh, there's an issue, and there's a you know when the NATO leaders decided that they wouldn't enforce an air corridor, uh, they plainly decided that that was a bridge too far. That um, uh, they weren't prepared 
uh, to be involved in that. And I'm not going to second guess that because it's not my responsibility to police an air corridor. Uh, somebody had to make that decision. I'm, I'm not, you know, that confident that the people that are making the decisions are very, you know, uh, sharp uh, uh, and making the best decisions. But, you know, with power comes a certain amount of responsibility, which I don't have to exercise. So maybe that's a different thing. But uh, all the world is going to be struggling with the question is how does um, how do you negotiate the um, uh, decline of, of um, Russian influence? Uh, but the, the thing is that uh, people like Ukrainians and uh, Georgians uh, uh, and, you know, who knows who's next are going to kickstart that process because, um, you know, they, they, why should they wait? And, you know, why should they uh, put up with um, repressive uh, conditions? Obviously, you know, we, we too, we have national interests and we might say, well, all right, you know, we love you, Ukraine, but um, it's not in our national interest to get blown up. So, um, you know, there's qualifications on that. Though as the, I mean, the trajectory, you can see that there's a, this is kind of a, people are reading just how strong Russia is in all of this. You know, the, 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 before the war, Russia was reading how strong Ukraine in the West was, but now we, we've, we can see uh, people reading how strong Russia is. And, and you can see that the, the NATO intervention, which there is a, a NATO intervention uh, through technical advisors, which is really a euphemism uh, uh, for uh, military commanders working alongside Ukrainians uh, and the uh, use of weaponry. Uh, and you can see that they're ratcheting, ratcheting it up, uh, like testing the boundaries to see how far they dare go uh, in terms of um, uh, pushing this thing forward. Uh, but you really see how much the dynamic is with the Ukraine people itself, that um, they've made it possible. Yeah, of course, Boris, uh, you know, Boris Scheister. I, I hope he had a, like a wine and cheese party with um, uh, Mr. Zelensky because that's what he's good at. But um, yeah, I'm with Jeff on that. It's uh, just imagine being in Ukraine. You know, and, um, you know, you've been hiding in a cellar uh, or, you know, fearing that, you know, you're going to get uh, knocked out. And this guy pitches up and you think, oh, yeah, that's that joker on the TV. I've seen him before. Um, you know, Donald Trump would have been welcome if he'd, if he'd have been still president. I'd probably be quite welcome now. But um, because, well, and as was the um, um, Ursula van der Leyen, you know, was there showing off. And you think that's kind of ridiculous. Uh, but nonetheless, um, you know, you would take what sucker you could. Just if you imagine it like being in Hungary in 1956 or like being Czechoslovakia in 68, you wouldn't have been saying, oh, you know, I don't want any support from that Anthony Eden. You know, he's an idiot. Um, you'd be thinking, please, you know, listen, you know, the world is listening. You'd be thrilled. Thanks. Eddie? Yeah, I think um, you could you could be cynical about <clears throat> these these uh the, what what are, what is gesture politics but i think the gesture did have significance it seems to me you know to actually see a visiting prime minister you know without without any body armor wandering around kiev how how what better signal could you have that ukraine is winning this war um i i just um i'm just reflecting on some of the things that have been said and uh, i'm interested in this concept of solidarity i don't you know, you've got on the one hand Jacob's point about it was really interesting. Jacob's point about you know the meaning of solidarity and how it can be almost, you know, we've we've seen this how it can also be almost be um, 
tokenistic, you know, the little the little Ukrainian flag in your Twitter handle, and that's somehow that's you showing your you know solidarity with the team. And then you, uh, Simon, introducing the idea that solidarity should have jeopardy, which frankly scares the shit out of me, uh, because you know you are dealing with a nuclear armed power and. You know, yes, I'm sure there's lots of people that will will argue quite sensibly that those nuclear weapons will never be used. But you know, we have got we have got close to the brink of nuclear war before over the last sixty years, and um, and I think uh, and I and I think therefore that caution is the better. Uh, you know, I, I I am not I'm not a fan of 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 poking <laughs> poking that particular that particular bear at all. Um, so what is the what is the middle ground? I mean, one thing that we're doing just since I've got. A, a few people listening is um, uh, we've been involved in trying to uh, set up a petition uh, for a special tribunal uh, on the crime of aggression in Ukraine, uh, which uh, Gordon Brown's been leading with uh, human rights lawyer Philippe Sands, and uh, it's won the support of quite a few other people around around the world. The idea here being that, as with Nuremberg, uh, several European countries could come together to. Um, uh, to pay for and set up immediately a special tribunal uh, that would serve an indictment uh, on Putin, not on crime, not on crimes against humanity or genocide, which is quite, which you know would take a long, a long time, but simply on the on the fact that he decided to invade a sovereign country, um, and and you could get that done like within the next few weeks and months. Um, that I think is something that again a lot of people have already said to us. Well, that's tokenistic. It'll never happen. It's not like you can walk into Moscow and arrest Putin. Uh, but I think it, demonst- it would be a demonstration of our uh, collective um, determination to show that uh, you know we don't we don't stand by somebody just walking into a sovereign neighbour uh, and killing people um, uh, with, without without that justification. So the, so that's just one example. Um, just it's come to mind a completely mad idea, maybe, but um, uh, I think that eventually this is going to end in a negotiated settlement. I think Russia is going to not get the kind of the bloody nose that some people want. It's not going to be a nice win lose and Zelensky, you know, flicking the, the victory sign and so on. I think there'll be a kind of muddy compromise. Di- diplomacy will, uh, will will win the day, and it'll be all rather uh, unsatisfactory for those of us who might like to see. Um, you know, clear lines of victory and loss, um, uh, I w- and I wonder what those can. I wonder what that compromise is going to have to look like uh, with regard to you know Eastern Ukraine. Not that I'm an expert, as I say. You know, will will we have to look at uh, some kind of negotiation there? Should Scotland, this is my mad idea, uh, get involved with uh, supporting Ukraine in conducts of referendums? In those regions, uh, if we believe in the principle of self-determination, should we we offer the people of Crimea and Donbass uh, the opportunity to make that self-determination, um, uh, that choice of self-determination? Uh, to go back to um, uh, the point that Stuart made right at the beginning, it's a really interesting question. I still don't really know, um, you know, whether the people whether the people in eastern Ukraine. And the Crimea really are ninety nine percent with Russia, uh, but should they get the opportunity to do so? I, I ask. Thanks, Eddie. And Jacob. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and keep these comments brief because I see we want to to go out. The the first, there was a question about the degree to which Ukraine looks east, and 
at least some people I know, people that were familiar to me in the during the Brexit discussions, and people that are very pro Brexit, um, can't get their heads around why on earth Ukraine would want to be part of the EU, for example, and that this and. An anecdote from when I was in Kiev, because my wife's Ukrainian and, and I'm, I've been in Kiev quite a lot and speaking to one of her friends there and, and to her and trying to understand why on earth you want to be part of the EU. And, and it, that somebody said to me something that's kind of stuck with me, which is that, Jacob, we, we don't think getting into the EU is how uh, Britain got into the EU. We understand what it means and we're going to use it for our own purposes. And you think that getting into the EU means you have to give up all of your national sovereignty and all aspirations to ever conduct your affairs. Well, just look at Poland. Poland is part of the EU, has used, has suckled at the teat of EU money to uh, fund enormous projects and economic success in, in as part of the EU. But nonetheless, when push comes to shove, knows that it's quite happy to flout various EU regulations and, and doesn't want to play ball when the EU gets too far. And I, that's the attitude I think that most Ukrainians have to, to the EU, which is, you might call it a mercantile one, but it's one that understands their national interest and how it's best advanced in their particular circumstances. And, and for that, I, I, I kind of, the more, more power to them. Um, I think the, the, the question raised of, can we trust our politicians and why would we trust them in this situation has, uh, was, uh, was well answered. By Jeff and I just think this is a this is an opportunity to demand certain things from our leaders and to ask them to live up to the things that they say they are in favour of, but have for so long and especially over the recent period spent so much time trashing. So it's, it's an opportunity. Yes, we should be careful, but it is, it is an opportunity. Um, and then on this question of well, what what will happen and what is possible? I think, I mean, there, there are three scenarios really. Well, there are there are lots of scenarios. There are here are three. Um, the, I'll, I think in vaguely in the order in which I think they're li uh, likely from least from less to more. So first, you, there's a Ukraine capitulation after a very successful Russian offensive in the east that encircles tens of thousands of their best troops and all the things that people have been reading about that Russia wants to achieve there. That would obviously lead to uh, a negotiated settlement wildly in favour of Russia. Um, and who knows what that would brew in the future in the same way that the previous negotiated settlement after a Ukrainian capitulation didn't solve the issue either. Um, and the second, obviously, is that Ukraine succeeds in uh, driving Russia largely out of its forces or making the position of Russian forces in Ukraine completely untenable. And so there has to be some kind of withdrawal. I think that's probably unlikely because uh, Russia is just too big to, to, for, a full, for Ukraine to fully succeed in that in that regard. The third then I think is the most likely, which is that um, something like a line of contact around something like the current line of contact over several weeks gets solidified as the as a kind of de facto series of borders um, uh, between Russia and Ukraine. And the exact contours of that are in some respect slightly up to us because certain deliveries of certain weapons could tilt the balance of power slightly in Ukraine's favor. But I don't, but I think something like a line of contact uh, and how the world or how the West and how Europe responds to the fact that there will effectively be for the foreseeable future, a simmering conflict along the lines that Ukraine has had since 2014, uh, but writ large over the whole East of the country. And that's a, that's a, a serious a thing for us to, to ponder and how we would how we would kind of organize that. And of course, we can show people ask how can we show solidarity? We can show solidarity by 
uh, yeah, by giving the weapons that Ukraine needs to shift the balance slightly. But we can also pledge, I think, to I'm, I don't want to suggest we can solve the problems of Ukraine by throwing money at the issue. But the West can and should pledge significant economic support to rebuild Ukraine. The, the goal that Penny outlined uh, of Russia wanting to ruin Ukraine and deprive dem demolish it economically should not be allowed to occur. And there is a, the West should pledge serious and significant investment and technologies and support to help rebuild Ukraine after uh, things settle down slightly. Okay, thanks, thanks, Jacob. So I've got I've got uh, Stuart and Carlton who've spoken, uh, indicating to speak, and after that, there's nobody. So I don't propose to uh, stretch it out too much longer. Um, so Stuart, then Carlton, and then um, if there's nobody else indicating or even questions coming in. We'll go back to the panel for their kind of one or two uh, nuggets of, of, of wisdom, pearls of wisdom, um, and, and we'll, we'll draw it to a uh, close. So, Stuart. Yeah, I just wanted to pursue this question uh, Penny raised about the rule of law, because, I mean, I was having a laugh with my colleague at work today about this idea of war crimes, which I've never really understood, and perhaps this is me being overly cynical, so people can tell me if I am, but... You know, isn't war a crime? You know, do we need this war crimes discussion? And it, it, it almost seems partly perhaps because I'm obsessed with the sort of technocratic nature of the modern elites. Like, you know, as the first bullet flew, they seem to be talking about war crimes. Um, you think, and you're thinking, well, why are they suddenly talking about war crimes in the middle of a war? Right. I mean, you might talk about at the end of a war, perhaps, but in the, at the start of a war, at the very beginning, it's almost as if they're trying to find some legalistic, um, you know, Gordon Brown can chat to his mates in some court where there are other lawyers um, who are like-minded. It, it almost seems like an avoidance of politics, a, a, an avoidance or a way to avoid talking to the people. Um because they can't get involved in a discussion about war crimes. That's the thing between lawyers and experts, whereas a discussion about war and national sovereignty and democracy, that's where we could have a discussion with the British people, um, where we're actually you know, having this discussion about what is so important. Um, <coughs> uh, democratic nationhood, uh, sovereignty and so on. Um, so that I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that. Um, also, I think Biden this morning talked about genocide, which seems to be part of the same thing. It was this rather incoherent ramble about <clears throat> uh, it's kind of genocide. It might not look like genocide, but it sort of feels like genocide. So I'm going to use the word genocide. And again, it's a kind of one of these human rights frameworks where it gives them a sense of moral purpose when they're not prepared or, or lack the ability to have a sense of moral purpose in terms of national democracy, national sovereignty, the importance of the nation. They seem to almost avoid that promotion by these more technocratic, legalistic discussions. And just my final link to this is <clears throat> this is based on nothing really, just sort of listening to when they're talking about it on the radio NATO but I wonder whether NATO and the expansion of NATO, I suppose one of my concerns about it is whether that is a, a seeding of democracy. You know, if you when you're joining NATO, 
um, rather than having a sense of yourself as a nation with, which have its, has its own defence and its own purpose. I mean, I'm pushing it because you could just say, well, NATO is a collection of nations, but I don't know, is, is NATO and this shift to NATO like the EU in a sense, that it's actually part and parcel of these elites who are unable or unwilling to promote a sense of national purpose, who end up joining all these uh, international organisations? Thanks, Stuart. I've, I've, I've now got another indication. So after Carlton, we'll have uh, John. Carlton? Hi there. Hi. Um, I was quite interested in uh, Eddie's response to Clayton um, on the union ceding uh, sovereignty, that, that the union is ceding sovereignty. Because it strikes me that kind of in relationship to the kind of the union in 1707, et cetera, et cetera, and onwards, that Scottish nationalism, a proper sovereign expression of Scottish nationalism is only possible once the union uh, comes into being, unless, of course, uh, we're talking about the 1320 Declaration of Arbroath as somehow the expression of, of, of Scottish sovereignty, which I don't think we are. So I kind of, I disagree fundamentally with, with, with Eddie's point there. I think Scottish sovereignty is only possible in the union. It's not a ceding. It's actually the expression of Scottish nationalism as a properly formulated political is only possible once it's in the union. So there is no ceding of sovereignty here. The union actually empowers and gives Scotland a chance to express itself as a sovereign nation state. Uh, just following on from uh, Stuart's point, I kind of think there's a, a real danger that we kind of slip into this, that the law somehow is uh, the expression of or becomes the proxy of sovereignty uh, in this discussion because that was kind of uh, listening to the radio earlier and there's this big discussion going on about what is genocide so Biden accuses Putin of committing genocide in Ukraine and that well there's all sorts of different legal definitions here so I kind of think uh, and unless Ed is saying that you know kind of Gina Miller was right in opposing or trying to find a legal challenge uh, to, to, to Brexit. So I kind of think there's a real problem here with the role of the law and how it opposes uh, the, the, the expression of, of, of sovereignty. But surely the kind of the best way we can express solidarity with, with and for the people of Ukraine is to fight for sovereignty at home and to try and defend the notion of, of sovereignty at home. There's been a lot of talk about sovereignty being over there but the kind of the real crisis in sovereignty which seems to be kind of certainly something james and jacob have pointed out is the crisis at in the belly of the beast in, in the kind of so-called western democracies that's where the real problem of, of sovereignty is so kind of so to express solidarity with the U ukrainian people we need to fight for sovereignty here okay so um, John next, and then what we'll do is we'll go back to the panel for their final thoughts and uh, uh, leave it there. Okay, John? Okay, just uh, really a, a couple of observations, but one in relation to NATO. Um, surely this is really actually about economics. Uh, small countries uh, such as the Baltic states are absolute minnows. Uh, they have uh, no means of... Uh, <laughs> establishing effective defense uh, 
uh, infrastructure. So uh, it, it makes economic sense to be part of a, a larger umbrella to uh, forge their own protection. And I think uh, Sweden and Finland are beginning to realize that now, even though they do have very substantial um, defense infrastructures. The second point really is um, coming on to Jacob's um, third and likely outcome of the uh, conflict. And uh, you know, from Putin's point of view, I suspect he's uh, conceded defeat on occupying uh, the full extent of Ukraine, but he will be very desirable to try and establish uh, Ukraine as a landlocked country and will go to great extent to secure the uh, territorial uh, territorial acquisition all the way to the border with Moldova. Um, so that then raises the question, at what point does the West actually establish, well, we've lost Maripol, it's a lost cause, but you know, do we bring in the guns? Do we put, actually maybe even put boots on the ground to uh, uh, defend Odessa uh, to ensure that uh, what is left of uh, Ukraine uh, actually has uh, maritime access. Uh, one very quick third point, this may be totally inappropriate, but I'll give it a quick plug. Uh, in my role as um, uh, art convener at the Glasgow Art Club, we're organising a uh, charity exhibition in aid of Ukraine in collaboration with the Association of Ukrainians in Great Britain. And that is on May the 8th. And we've got uh, quite a number of uh, some of Scotland's top artists will be contributing work and most are contributing uh, almost 100% uh, in aid of that uh, uh, charitable course. Okay, that was me. Thank you. Thanks. Finishing on a note of solidarity there, John, as well. Thank you. Okay, so I'll go back to the speakers in the, the order in which they spoke um, for their, their kind of uh, brief summations and points, um, the, the kind of the one point they want to hammer home. And uh, and, and after a couple of announcements, we'll call it a day. So, uh, James. Everybody wants uh, peace, you know, that, that's reasonable. That, and everybody's rightly terrified of, of, of war and what it means. Uh, um, and, but I think that the, um, uh, it, it's entirely reasonable when Western leaders consider what to do next, that they take into account that uh, Russia is a nuclear power uh, and try and negotiate their way out of that. Um, but the, the, uh, the thing is that we're not choosing um, whether there is conflict in the world. Conflict is in the world, it's a thing. Um, uh, and, uh, um, uh, you know, it is how change comes about. And the, uh, the way things are, the, there are a number of states um, uh, who have power in the world uh, overextended, you know, we've been one of those, you know, Britain for years has been, uh, you know, uh, all through uh, decolonization process was a power that was overextended and you saw an immense amount of conflict all through the, the British hinterland um, because of that. And I don't think you would have ever have said to those people that were fighting for their independence, oh no, um, you know, wait, you know, um, in time it will come. And people did say that all the time, but um, uh, they were furious about it, and understandably so. Uh, so I, th I think you, c you can't counsel peace to people who are 
being invaded, that's like uh, an invitation to surrender. We do, you know, you can't, uh, we're not armchair generals. We can't, we, uh, who knows where the border will lie. Um, you know, but, uh, as the great philosopher Stan Lee said, you know, um, borders of merely where two armies became exhausted uh, and gave up. And, um, you know, the border, I suppose, will represent, uh, you know, the, the, the balance of power between these, these two forces and their complex forces. So I, I, I think that's important. But the key thing is, is will Ukraine be in a position to rebuild? And um, uh, uh, will the solidarity of, that Ukraine's shown in the conflict uh, translate into an independent country? And I think that's something that we can very much hope for. And the way we can do that is by lending support in whatever way we can. Uh, I, I think moral support is very important. I think charitable support is really important, uh, you know, because they all they all add up to um, uh, a, a legitimation of uh, Ukraine's uh, war effort and a delegitimation of the invasion. Thanks, James. Um, yeah, let's put some pressure on the government to do more, do different stuff. Um, okay, Eddie, and then Jacob. Yeah, I think my final comment is just simply that I think um, the I guess the question is for I, I'm asking is whether you know is Ukraine the canary in the coal mine? Is this the is this the start of something? Um, or at least not the start of something, but you know, will be seen as being the the beginnings of a of a new era. You know, are we within the next two weeks likely to see the European Union be dealt a you know a grievous blow? Um, if, uh, if if um, you know France votes for Marine Le Pen, even though she said she doesn't want Brexit, but you know, it's hard to see how the European Union uh, can be uh, you know can can kind of maintain its strength. Um, with with you know with her as president over the next four years, is it is it the case that America we just have to reconcile ourselves to America becoming weaker and weaker? Is Pax Americana gone? Um, you know, uh, and what does that mean for for us? For me, it means that um, you know we you know that, that we do have to in this country at least for, for you know it make it makes the argument for me for for a stronger union. Uh, I think it makes the argument for me for. You know, a strong, a stronger NATO, uh, redoubling our defense, redoubling our spending on defense, and in trying to encourage America to to play its full part. Uh, all these things, in my view, anyway, become more important, not, not less important. Uh, if indeed we are we are in a world where we we have to pick sides again. Thanks, Eddie. Nice. Okay, Jacob. Yeah, and, and Eddie gave a brilliant series of questions there, which I think illustrate the degree to which this is a, a, a real historic moment for us uh, in, in the West, and we are part of the West, whether we like it or not, whatever that means. And so I'll preempt Simon in plugging what the, an event the Academy of Ideas has next week, which is called United We Stand, Ukraine uh, and the Future of the West, where hopefully we'll be digging into some of those uh, issues and, and trying to answer a few of those questions that, that uh, Eddie raised so ably but to end i mean i, I want to end I, I, I would like to end on a slightly positive note and i've always thought um over the last few years coming to and from and visiting various places in ukraine and especially kiev that there has been for many years or at least a few years a tremendous energy in ukraine and kiev is one of the most exciting and dynamic uh, european cities I've, I've been to over the last few years and that energy if we can do uh, as collectively or individual as in, through individual governments 
if we can give Ukraine what it needs to come out of this with something resembling a victory, even if there are concessions involved and even if territory is lost, if we can do something to give Ukraine that sense that there is international support and that the principle that they're fighting for of self-determination uh, is one that we share and the one that they can land a real blow for, if that can happen, then a, a very positive and interesting country could emerge in Ukraine from this crisis. And that, I think, is a, a, a valuable enough prize, if you like, for us to be seriously concerned uh, with, with supporting Ukraine and showing solidarity where we can. Great. Thank you. And, and for me, the, 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 the one thing that's really kind of coming out of this whole thing for me is, is a whole, around the question of leadership as well. So who would have thought that, you know, four years ago or whatever, a, a comedian would be holding a nation together? And, and, and telling America where to go when they offer him uh, a place to run. He says, no, I, don't, I, I want guns, I don't want a plane. Um, and, 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 and moments in time, historical moments in time, throw up leaders. So the, the people that are leading us in different situations in the future might not be um, people we know yet. Um, and, and I'm looking forward to seeing leaders emerging. Um, I think that's been a very useful discussion. Uh, the, the, the Scotland Salon is planning to have more discussions um, over the coming months uh, in, in May and in June. And there may be one more before we get to November where we'd like to really have an in-person um, get together in Glasgow. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Ideas. You can support us by subscribing, sharing and leaving us a review. Check out our feeds for recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival Archive and other Academy of Ideas events.